All right, thank you guys. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of James, James chapter 1. We finish uh, trying to finish up chapter 1. I think this is like the fifth or sixth week in chapter 1. And I do have another week in chapter 1 that we're looking at. uh, But this is such a significant chapter in the book of James. I think it really does set uh, a foundation and establish uh, some issues on a surface level that James is going to address more deeply in the chapters and the verses to to follow. But uh, we want to focus this morning on James chapter 1, and in uh, particular, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25, and I want to thank you for being here. If you're a guest, especially this morning, whether in here in person or online, we're so grateful to your, your joining with us, and you're a part of our worship experience this morning, and we would love to interact with you if during the course of this service, as God speaks to you, whether it's committing your life to Him, becoming a follower of Christ, or if you're a follower of Christ already, but you're looking to be a part of a church family, which is so vital uh, to the faith experience and necessary to the faith experience. Uh, we just hope that you will reach out to us by texting that word, that single word, FL Respond, uh, to the number 833-571-3475, and we'll look forward to following up with you. Uh, this morning, I, I want to address what I'm calling the, the ergonomics of faith. Now, if you're familiar with ergonomics, you've probably hear it in your workplace quite a bit, but ergonomics is the, the engineering science that, that studies the relationship between workers and their environment. And what has emerged out of such studies are uh, a number of ergonomically designed uh, products for, for the workplace. You have ergonomically designed keyboards, uh, mouse devices, uh, chairs, desks, uh, document holders. I mean, it's kind of a never-ending list of, of these ergonomic products that are to enhance the workspace, make employees, workers more productive in a way that is efficient and, state and safe, especially for repetitive uh, motions. Uh, and it's a word that uh, I, I grabbed hold of in, in recent weeks in preparing for this because the word ergonomics comes from the Greek word ergon, E-R-G-O-N, ergon. It's a word that means work. It's the, a word that James uses in our passage this, this morning in, in verse 25, uh, where he talks about, but one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become an, a forgetful hearer, but an active doer. The word active there is a translation of the word ergon. So the expectation of James is that we as a community of faith, we are to be a working doer. We are to be working doers. NASB is translated as active. We are to be active doers of the word of God and not not hearers only. Now, we find this to be a continuation of a theme and uh, concerns that, J- that James has already been addressing uh, in all of the, of the preceding verses. James is very much concerned with the active working out, the doing of our faith in the context of our environment. And in particular, the, the environment of that messianic community of people that we know for the most part were a part of, of what we call the Anawim people. They were, an, they were an, a very impoverished people. And so these, these were people that were disenfranchised. They were power, powerless. They were oppressed. They were, they were victimized. And, and James has been asserting to them the importance of them holding forth in faith, be, being steadfast in their faith. 
and that you really are in, an, in, believe it or not, he would say that you are in an, an advantaged position. That because of your, your lot in life, because of your environment, because of your situation, God is able to accomplish something in you that he's unable to accomplish in, in the life of the affluent and those who, who oppress you. And so he's, he's really writing to a people to say, hang in there. You keep fighting the good fight. You ask God for wisdom to persevere and to endure and to understand that he is doing a work in you that allows you, that gives you eyes of faith, enabling you to see through your circumstances to the greater purposes of God that are being accomplished. And so that is James' concern. It's the witness and the testimony of this messianic community and what they have been entrusted with, especially this as we saw last week and where we continue on this morning. Uh, but as we saw in verse 21 last week, he's saying that all of this should be the byproduct uh, in our lives because of what we have received. And here in verse 21, we see that it is the word implanted. That because you have received the word implanted that, that brings about salvation, uh, for, for James, this idea of the word implanted points to God actively working in the lives of his people. Don't measure, don't weigh, don't evaluate well, what God is doing on, on the basis of your present tense circumstances and environment and situation. Those things may or may not change. But because you have received the word implanted, you need to recognize that you're a part of a greater redemptive purpose that, that God is accomplishing. In fact, he would say back in verse 18, remember? He would say that we as the believing community, no less us than James' audience in that day, he was saying that your life and how you live, how you work out your faith actively where your feet are in your daily life. You bear testimony, you are exhibit A, you are the first fruits of this, cre this larger creative work that God is doing, this greater redemptive work that God is doing for, for the entirety of his created order. And so you and I as believers, we're exhibit A. We're exhibit A to the world. We are the first fruits. As people know us, as we interact in daily life in our respective worlds, when we deal with our own circumstances and situations and crises in life, people that know us to be followers of Christ, they're watching. And they're anxious to see what difference does faith really make in you. And thus what James is doing here, because of this word implanted, that if this has been rightly received, this implanted word, it is going to have a very real impact on the expression of your beliefs in your life. In fact, he, he would say in these verses that follow what we're going to see is that this word implanted when rightly received into our hearts and our lives that is accomplishing this salvation, it is accomplishing within us a faith of fourfold active expression. That is, first of all, ours is to be a faith 
of active belief. That if this word implanted has been rightly received, and if it is accomplishing within us the salvation of God, of which we're a part, this much larger redemptive purpose of the entire created order, if this word has been rightly received and it is in fact accomplishing deliverance and salvation in your life, then yours is going to be a faith of active belief. James says it this way, notice in verse 22, but prove yourselves. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. Now, I hope it comes as no surprise to to any of us that the faith that we espouse, the faith that we confess, is a faith that is to be proved out objectively. That our faith can be proved out objectively. If this implanted word has been rightly received, we shouldn't be surprised that my faith in yours can be proved objectively. Any child on a schoolyard, whenever one of their classmates makes some sort of subjective assertion, some subjective claim, how does a child respond in the schoolyard? We've all probably said it before. Oh yeah? Prove it. Even children have an expectation of objectivity. That claims are too easily made that things have to be, have to be proved out. The proverbial statement, actions speak louder than words, is never more true than what James is asserting right here. Now in that proverb, actions speak louder than words. Louder has nothing to do with with decibels on a meter, but rather it has to do with, with honesty, with clarity. I can, I can more honestly see, I can see with greater, greater clarity your beliefs, not in the words that you say, but in your actions, how you, how you live. Whoever made that statement recognized that words can be too easily crafted to try to convince something of others or maybe even trying to, to convince ourselves of, of who we are. But it is, in fact, this, 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 this quality, this pairing of hearing and doing that gives credibility to our witness and the testimony of our faith. And listen, when there is a disconnect, when there is not a connection, when, when, when your volume, when you speak in great volume the rhetoric of faith, but there is an absence of virtuousness in your life, all credibility is lost. In fact, church, it can be said that in a world like ours today, in a world that is so hostile to faith, in a world that does not want to listen to you, in a world that does not want to hear about your faith, you can be certain, nonetheless, that they're going to watch you in the living of your faith. 
And if there is that disconnect between volume and virtue, all credibility is lost. I read a humorous little account some time ago. It was uh, apparently some critic of, of Sparta, the this Greek city-state. And this particular critic was advocating that, that Sparta become a, a democracy. Well, Lycurgus, who is the chief lawmaker, the best-known lawmaker in Sparta, his response to hearing that, the voice of that critic was, why don't you first make your own home a democracy? You see, if you're going to be one that holds forth ideals, then those ideals had best inform our lives. And that's James' concern. If we're going to be a people of influence, if we're going to be a unique and distinctive people, if we're going to be the people of God that have the opportunity to bear testimony, to hope and faith to a world around us, to be a shining light in a world of darkness, then there must be this pairing between hearing and doing. Nowhere, I think, is this this hearing and doing and the importance of doing best seen in the relationship between, between Tim Duncan and the NBA and his predecessor and teammate, David Robinson. I would say that Tim Duncan is arguably the best power forward ever play the game of basketball, NBA. I mean, this is a guy who has, who has won five NBA championships. Three of those championships, he was the most valuable player in the NBA Finals. 15-time NBA All-Star. 15-time All-Defensive Team in the NBA. He had this, this incredible turnaround jumper off the glass like no one had ever seen in the game. And yet with all of these accolades, all of these accomplishments, with his achievements at the highest level of basketball, he did all of these things with grace, poise, dignity, and humility. You can go back and watch his induction speech into the NBA Hall of Fame. And he talks about his relationship with with David Robinson, former teammate, his mentor, who he said had the greatest influence on his personal and professional life. In that speech, in that induction speech, he said, people often ask me when I, when I talk about David Robinson and my, and my relationship with him, he said, people will often ask me, Tim, what is it that David said? What did he show you? He said, it's not so much that he said or anything or showed me anything. It's not like he set me down and talked to me about these things. But he said, he said, David Robinson was was an incredible father. He said he was an incredible man. He was the consummate professional when it came to being the very best at what he could be. And he showed me how to be a professional athlete. He showed me how to carry myself. He showed me how to be a leader in the community. 
And it wasn't like he ever set me down and said, and, and said to me, Tim, you need to do this, you need to do that. But he said, he elevated me and he showed me the way by just being that. By just being that. You see, church, when we are being that, when we are being doers of the word, and listen, tragically, we have reduced the Christian faith down to this little punch list of not doing certain things. We've made the faith experience into something that, that is negative. Uh, we have made our faith into something that we are known by because we don't do certain things. It's a loser's perspective. But to elevate our understanding of the life of faith, our influence comes by, the, by, by being that, by being doers of the word. And the most colossal mistake, and listen, because in Western culture, what I've noticed in the Western church, there is this, there is this preoccupation with wanting to know the word, study the word, and all that's fine and good. But yet, but to just seek out to know the word, to just hear the word, and to not do the word, that is a colossal mistake. And a magnitude of self-deception that is beyond correction. The expectation of we who would be the community of faith, the people of God, is that we have this kind of faith, of active belief. But not just active belief, but also active contemplation. Remember, this is the ergonomics of faith, the working of faith. Ours is a faith of, of active contemplation. Notice verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in, in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. So when when hearing and doing do not align, James is saying, he's using an analogy here. When hearing and doing do not align, James says it's, it's like a person who goes and they, they look into the mirror and then they walk away and they forgot completely what they saw. Now, the word looks that, that James utilizes there in, in verse in verse. Uh, 23, that particular word translated as looks means to stare intently. It's, a, it's an intent kind of stare. It's a prolonged look, a contemplative look. And the fact that this present tense is in somewhat of an imperfect form means that this is, this, what, I, what I see is the recognition that I'm incomplete. This is not a completed task. 
This is something that that is accomplished and done over the course of a lifetime, not seasonally, not not occasionally, not when it's convenient. But But what God desires to be accomplished in us, it requires a prolonged contemplation and reflection. It's the stacking up of the cumulative effect of the Word of God, this active Word that has been implanted within us. It would be hard to imagine how many mirrors we walk by in a day. How many times you look at yourself in a mirror. I mean, we, I mean, we can't even walk by a car in a parking lot. We, what do we do? We look in the mirror or we not even the mirror. We just look in the windows to see our, our reflection. And the light that is reflected to us, what we see in the mirror If we're honest, it's both external and internal, isn't it? I mean, we see things that, we see things externally. I may see things I don't like externally when I look at a mirror. And I'll just be honest, I do. I think, my soul, what's happening to me? I mean, my nose is getting bigger the older I get. My ears are getting bigger. I mean, man, I hit 60s, things are either growing on me or falling off of me. (laughs) Hair growing out of my ears everywhere it's not supposed to be. Externally. But there's also, when I look in the mirror, I, I see the inner man as well. There are things internally, character. There's flaws I, I recognize that I don't like, that don't reflect the kind of man that I, I want to be and even confess to be. And there are those that when they look in the mirror and they see the external things they don't like, there are some that will go spend money to to correct the external things. Those who have allowed the world to define for them what, what is desirable, what is flawed, and so in response, they go and get the externals corrected, fixed, enhanced. And yet when looking in the mirror, sadly, there are so many who go to great lengths to, uh, to fix and to repair what the world has said is flawed and not desired. And yet sadly, they are still unhappy because they've done nothing about the inner person. They've done nothing about the heart that has allowed the world to define for them worth and value and what is desirable. But what James has in mind here is something that that is formative in life. And again, the context is related to the implanted word. So James, in his thinking, the idea is that the implanted word becomes the mirror in which I see myself and reflects who I want to be and should be. I, I see myself as I stare intently into the implanted word of my heart, I I, I see, yes, my flaws, I see my sins, I see how I I fall short, but much more so, I I see also possibilities, untapped, unrealized, potential impossibilities. Because what the implanted word does, and I think this is James' main focus in this, 
is that it's only as I stare intently into the implanted word that I see myself as God would have me see myself, that I am made in the image of God, that I'm created to show the glory of God. And as I stare intently, as I meditate upon the word of God, then something formative all the more is fashioned and accomplished in me so that his glory, the glory of his image might show forth. The psalmist, in describing the righteous man, said he delights in the law of God. In his law doth he meditate day and night. From his, life, from his lying down to his rising up, he is meditating, he is thinking about the word of God. And Paul, in writing to the church, at Philippi would say, as you, as, you, as you consider those things that are good and right and holy and, po and poor, all things virtuous, he says, let your mind dwell upon these things. Give prolonged contemplation to these things because it's only as you give them contemplative thought, reflective thought, it's only as you meditate on these things day and night that the glory of God, the image of God is fashioned in you. It cannot happen when faith is just a sometimes thing. When what we have in reality is just a sometimes religion. The work of God is not accomplished in us when it's just a seasonal observation. Or when it's something we do when it's convenient to do. Ours is an active faith, an active belief, a faith of active contemplation, but it's also one of active continuation. Did you notice that in verse 25 where he makes reference to having continued in it? That having taken this, this prolonged look and stare and into the perfect law, the law of freedom, the deliverance that is ours, and has continued in it, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but an active doer. The language of continuance is certainly in keeping with the teachings of James' brother, Jesus. In Matthew 24, 13, Matthew records Jesus as saying that it is those who endure, persevere, persist. It is those who endure to the end that shall be saved. And so it's this recurring theme of continuance, of not allowing the circumstances of life and the hardships of life and the challenges of life to be a, th a threat to, my, to the continuance of my, of my faith expression in life. The best analogy I could think of of this continuance, this persevering and persistent pursuit of the salvation that we have received through the implanted word that, it, that is God actively working in us. Consider with me for a moment the question, what is the difference between a, a literary scholar, a biblical scholar, a biblical literary scholar, and, and that may shock some of you, there's actually a, a nuance of, of literary studies that just focus on ancient sacred texts. And there are literary 
biblical scholars who study sacred texts the, the same way they would study the works of Shakespeare or any great writer in history. And these, these individuals, these literary scholars who hold terminal degrees in biblical scho- literary scholarship, they know more about the Bible than you will ever know, than I will ever know. And yet they're not, they're not believers. There's a great many literary biblical scholars who are not confessing Christians. They're not Christ followers. They're just scholars when it comes to the sacred text. What is the difference? between those individuals who have such a knowledge of having heard the word of God, the difference between those and someone who confesses the faith, confesses to be a believer, but is not a doer of the word and is just a hearer of the word as James describes it here. The tragedy is is that there is no difference at all and both will meet the same end. If we are to be a presence in the world, a presence of influence, a presence of faith and hope in a world that is dark and despairing, if we're to be a light under the world, that is going to happen over the long haul, that's going to happen by our perseverance, our continuance, That does not happen with a sometimes religion. But if we want to make a mark on the world, if we want to offer something that is transcendent to this world, faith and hope, then it pushes past the pain, the rejection, the hardships, and it continues on. It perseveres. It endures. It sees through the present circumstances to the greater story that is being written. The late John Lewis, U.S. representative from Georgia, was beaten to unconsciousness in 1961 at a bus stop in South Carolina. It was just one of many beatings that he had received as a result of his campaigns with the Freedom Riders, his activities in the civil rights movement. He was beaten into unconsciousness by a man because John Lewis had had dared to step into the waiting area of that bus station that was designated as whites only. Can you imagine any one of those beatings, any beating that he ever received, imagine how easy it would have been after any one of those to just walk away to say man this is more than I ever bargained for this all sounded good in theory but it ain't looking like a real good idea right now how easy it would have been to just walk away or to walk away when he saw numerous friends 
and children even, murdered. Why? Because they wanted and desired the most simple of things, their constitutional rights. And how easy it would have been for John Lewis to just walk away and say, you know what, let somebody else take care of this. But he didn't quit. He continued on. He saw through those things to a bigger story, a bigger narrative that needed to be written. And so he continued on and he persevered. 48 years later, after his 1961 beating in a South Carolina bus stop, John Lewis had an audience with his abuser, with his attacker, Elwin Wilson. Mr. Wilson, after 48 years, wanted to apologize to John Lewis. An apology that John Lewis graciously accepted. Standing there in John Lewis's office, he gave to Elwin Wilson his book, and he inscribed upon it in the inside cover. And John Lewis wrote these words. To Elwin Wilson, with faith and hope, keep your eyes on the prize. In faith and hope, keep your eyes on the prize. You see, when faith and hope are the guiding principles, the foundation of your life, faith and hope. You can endure all kinds of things. I fear we are becoming a culture that quits too easily. That's hard, so I'll quit. You mean I'm not just receiving, you're not just going to give this to me? I quit. It's too hard. It's too challenging. I didn't know I was going to have to work for it. I quit. Oh, you offended me. I quit. You hurt my feelings. I quit. You said something that my untrained lay theology doesn't agree with, so I'll quit. I'm moving on. But where faith and hope are your undergirding principles, your guiding principles, you can endure anything. And it helps you to continue to have faith and hope in people. 
Faith and hope enables you to continue believing in people, but more especially, faith and hope, when that's who we are, when that is our undergirding principles in life, faith and hope, people believe in us. I wonder what would have happened to this gentleman, Elwin Wilson, if John Lewis had not had faith and hope. How many others like Wilson or his associates would have never had the opportunity to see faith and hope in a real man, in a real person, in a real situation. And by that same token, how many in our respective worlds Miss faith and hope at the intersection of life do not have opportunity to see faith and hope because I didn't continue in it. Oh, church, much is at stake. Much is at stake in your confession of faith. Because if the world doesn't see in us faith and hope in continuing fashion, then all they see is another sometimes religion. And that's the last thing the world needs to see. And finally, he speaks to an active blessedness. That our faith is to be one of active blessedness. You saw how it ended here. This person, the one who is the active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. It's the same word of Jesus back in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger, the word makarios, fortunate, happy. These are the ones that are fortunate and happy. Now the difference is between what James and Jesus have, have defined as blessedness, a blessed existence, it is a stark contradiction to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel proclaimed in the West that promises you your best life now. That is completely foreign to scripture. That you can have all the amenities of the world's offering as long as you name it and claim it with just the right inflection. Not according to James. The blessedness, the sense of blessedness, purpose, being fortunate, being purposed in life. Oh, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't some present tense word that, that James is using here that points ahead to, to some cherry on top of the Sunday at the end. Now what James is speaking to is that in our doing, this has a very concrete present tense reality for us. This has a very real present tense existence for the people of God who are doers of the word and not just hearers. That means you and I make choices and decisions on a daily basis. Am I going to make choices and decisions, the handling and the managing, the stewardship of my time and energy and resources? Is it going to be, am I going to decide towards things that are of eternal value? At the rejection and the cost and the expense of immediate gratification? It's what stewards do. Carl Lewis in the 1984 Summer Olympics won four gold medals. And even though he won four gold medals, he was still criticized 
It's human nature. He was criticized because he didn't go for a world record in, in the long, long jump. He quit after his first jump because he knew that no one was going to beat him. He was going to get the gold record and he was right, the gold medal, and he was right. Nobody came near what he jumped in his very first jump. And he was criticized for not going for a world record, using his other jumps to go for a world record. Lewis explained himself in a way that was very inspirational to me. He said, you know, the Olympic trials took more out of me than I anticipated. So instead of risking energy and uh, risking uh, injury to, to, to continuing to jump, he said, I decided to save my energy for the races that would follow so I could win gold. He said, I came here to win gold medals. He said, I wasn't interested in world records. He said, world, he said, I didn't want to waste my energy going for a world record that I knew would eventually be broken. But I wanted gold medals because they could never take those from you. When you're a gold medal winner, they can never take that from you. So every one of us, we learn from Scripture that we have to make choices and decisions about our life. That when it comes to the resources, the time on this earth, the energies and the wherewithal that God has entrusted to each one of us, we are stewards of all that. And so as a steward of all these things God has entrusted to me, I gotta make choices and decisions. And am I, am I just going to go for the pleasure of the moment? Try to follow the crowd, be a part of the crowd, impress the crowd, keep up with the Joneses? Or am I gonna make decisions in my context, in my environment for things of eternal value that I will never lose and cannot be taken from me? That's how an ergonomic faith plays itself out in our environment. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we, each one, might exude and reflect an ergonomical kind of faith, a faith that works wherever we might find ourselves, in whatever context, wherever our feet are, that our faith would be an active kind of faith, a faith that is so active it continues keeping on and persevering, knowing that we have been thrust into a world of darkness that is desperately searching for a glimmer of light. And Father, as you have been the light of the world, I pray that we, each one, might be a people who endure and persevere so that those around us might have a realistic glimpse of what hope and faith really looks like in real time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.